welcome to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And if you're looking for candid conversations on arts and culture, you found the right place. Please consider subscribing and uh, sharing. Today, my guest is a cartoonist and musician known for his accessible yet subversive comic strips, the uh, K Chronicles, uh, Ink, and the Nightlife. While his work is humorous and universal in appeal, he, is oft he often also deals with political, social, and racial issues. Please welcome Keith Knight. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. But you forgot my, my new title, Doctor. Keith Knight. Dr. Keith Knight. <laughs> I just got an honorary. Yes, I got an honorary doctorate from my alma mater of Salem State University. So I'm going to milk that as as much as I can until someone says, please stop using that. <laughs> until someone says, until I'm in a situation where someone screams, is there a doctor in the house? And that, that's probably the only time I will say, uh, I will not say I'm a doctor. So yeah, thank you for uh, joining my podcast. It's it's definitely a treat to have you on here. And before we get too deep into the conversation that you were talking about before we got started, you had these 20 minute, 30 minute conversations. It's like, where's the podcast? <laughs> so could you uh, share the 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 Keith, the doctor, sorry, doctor, gotta milk it, the Dr. <laughs> Keith Knight story and what was your first experience with art? Oh, wow. Um, well, I think my first experience with art, I... I would draw all the time. Uh, I remember drawing on my apartment walls when I was a little kid. Um, and it was always just a part of my life. Um, I also remember drawing dinosaurs in kindergarten and the teachers being super excited to hold up my drawings <laughs> when I was uh, in kindergarten. And honestly, I had a great uncle who I think was really responsible for exposing me and my twin sister to all types of art. He would take us to museums. He took us to New York. I grew up in Boston. He took us to New York City when we were little kids, uh, to libraries, to uh, plays. I remember seeing The King and I with Yul Brenner, like, like performing on stage. Oh, wow. And, and just, just really cool stuff like that. So... Um, was always exposed to it. And I remember doing my first zine um, when I was in fourth grade. I think it was fourth grade. And it was a, my own version of Mad Magazine. It was called Kooky Magazine. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I didn't have uh, access to a copy machine. So I actually literally drew the same issue over and over again and sold it for 15 cents. So... I love I love I love those those early kind of art entrepreneur situations. I, I love it uh, when um, when I when I was younger, I, I was talking with a uh, an illustrator earlier about this today. When I was younger, I would uh, hurry up and finish my test. I would take the B, right, knowing that I could get an A if I worked. But I would take the B so I could draw. Um, X-Men, I could draw Wolverine and then charge people a quarter to buy a picture of Wolverine that I drew in class. <laughs> ah, that was good. You, you That's entre entrepreneurial. That's uh, pretty amazing. The hustle was um, real. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it, I always got better grades if I included drawings in my schoolwork, unless it was math. <laughs> math, math, it was either right or wrong. You couldn't 
you couldn't scan, you know, draw a nice picture uh, alongside a, an incorrect answer. So you you would get that um you would get a nice drawing next to like the D or the F or whatever it is. Uh, I tell you, uh, geometry was the only subject I failed in grade school. I would just get the I would get the test and just be like, just I don't know, <laughs> just sit and draw the rest of the time. It was it was one of those things for me when I was uh like in high school and I made that kind of choice because um early on like I wanted to actually be a comic book artist and that was what I hoped and dreamed of as a kid. And then this slowly got whittled away and it eventually became, hey, I'll be an engineer. And then I took a phys- physics class and I was like, I'm not gonna be an engineer. I think I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's where that shift kind of came to, hey, I'm an entrepreneur, so at the time, selling sodas and candy and all of that. I used to sell comics. Let's do that. And that's ultimately nice. where I'm at now. Nice. Well, listen, you dodged a bullet. <laughs> Getting out of the way. Uh, being a, a, a comic book artist. I was just contemplating that today. Like how literally we get paid. I've been, you know, doing this probably more than 30 years now like self-syndicated to, to newspapers. And we still get paid the same rate as we got 30 years ago. Like, wow. I think there was at one point I, I asked for more money from places and I got it from some places, but other places were like, nah, I can't do it. Good stuff like that. So, um, you know, the advice I give to cartoonists starting out is like, don't, do not, try to self-syndicate to newspapers and you know newspapers are a completely dead industry as far as cartoonists go so you know the best thing to do is to establish your own community Mm -hmm. and you can do that with your you know your own website with going to conventions with um you know posting on social media and having your own patreon page and just build it from there you know build it from there collect emails and just build it slowly build it up um i'm in fewer newspapers than i've ever been mm-hmm. and i'm more successful than i've ever been so and and, and, and thank you for sharing that because that's um one that's an early gym too i think that's i think that's applicable through like various medias right where you have comics and that is that is your your lane um, and an illustration and that is your lane and cartoons. That is your lane. And, and looking at what I'm doing in terms of, you know, this version of content creation, I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to, you know, kind of not going with the traditional path because there's that lack of vision there. It's like, oh, we're going to pay you this, or this is how this works. And there's no conversation or maybe adjusting this or going towards where things are at in terms of how much people are paying and and kind of getting with the time. So being able to do it yourself and be able to build a community, that's where it's really at. It, it truly is. Like I, I tell people to <clears throat> um, find your niche, like find your focus. And what I found is when I was coming up, I, I was doing article uh, comic strips about race issues and police brutality and stuff that no one else was doing. And right. um, and it seemed to be hitting in a way that my other strips weren't weren't hitting as much. And so I just leaned into it and um, 
that was super important to sort of find that niche and become so whenever whenever somebody or some organization thinks of that they say okay like who can we get to do a strip about this you know mm-hmm. automatically my name is generally the first thing that comes to mind and there are so many stories you know i could do it forever um <laughs> I tend to do it and then, you know, do something else just to keep it interesting and uh, and not just hammer it all the time. But but, you know, that that's how sort of I grew. I grew my my brand and I, I just realized that I wasn't going to reach anybody under 50 uh, through the newspaper. <laughs> you know, I needed to. Uh, branch out and so I started doing slideshows really early on Mm. to get to get people you know and in in a a totally get people turned on to my comics in a totally different way and I love performing live Um, Mm. I kind of see it as sort of almost like stand-up with visual aids you know and um, no one ever expects a, a a comic strip slideshow about uh, racism and police brutality to be humorous. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so it's always the surprise when they, they realize that it can be funny too. Um, you know, <clears throat> my director from World put it best. It's it's funny, but it's not a joke. That's that's the way he put it. That's that's great, and we we're gonna we're gonna put a pen in that because we're gonna come back to that. I don't want to bury the lead too much, but we are gonna come back to that. Uh, I wanted to ask you about um, certain influence you have um, in terms of maybe cartoonists that have influenced you and your your own style um, and, and maybe other artists that have influenced you, because I find that it's not purely artists that are in the, the genres that we work in or the mediums that we work in, but it could be a guitarist that, inter- that, that influenced you. So with any of the influences that you have, stylistically, what do you take from, from them and kind of make your own or in, in, in your career? Cause you said you've been, you know, out there doing this for, you know, a couple, couple decades at this point. Yeah. Wow. Um, there's so many influences, you know, if, if you're talking about comics and then, then I'll branch out from there. I sure. was influenced by, I think Charles Schultz and, um, and Charles Schultz, um, Maury Turner, um, Bugs Bunny, like Chuck Jones, um, Bob Clampett, like the old Warner Brothers cartoons, mm-hmm. uh, Calvin and Hobbes um, is a huge thing. The uh, Bill Watterson, Mad Magazine, like Sergio Aragonés from Mad Magazine, it's huge influence. Um, I would say uh, Pedro Bell, uh, the artist who did the Parliament Funkadelic albums. Nice. And um, um, there's also, I'm totally spaced on the other artist's name, but uh, there were two main artists that did those Parliament Funkadelic albums. I used to buy those albums just for the artwork, you know, like in the music. I mean, obviously the music is amazing, but like I would just sit there and just look through, like it was so much fun looking at all the little things that they put in there. Um, Doonesbury was another big influence, especially the early Doonesbury stuff. Doonesbury was the first time I saw uh, black characters that weren't 
they they actually had a black agenda. <laughs> and was it Overton Lord, by the way? Lloyd? Oh, Overton Lloyd. Yes, Overton Lloyd. Um, but I just remember the early, like, Doonesbury, when, the one who did in college, it was like uh, this black character that knocked on the dormitory of Doonesbury and said, could you, would you like to contribute to the uh, local chapter of the Black Panthers? And they were yeah. like, oh, no, I'm tapped, I'm tapped. And, and they got to be like, no, I, you know, I don't have anything. And then he writes a little X on their door, <laughs> moves on to the next. And like, it was like, oh, wow, like this is, you know, this is really funny and 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 current and mixes in. That's what I loved about Doonesbury is, is it sort of mix in current real events with these fictional characters. And so uh, I think that's part of what I do is I have these characters based on real people, yeah. but also mix in a lot, a lot of uh fake elements but current event type stuff too so that's that's really big but also like a big influence for me were editorial cartoons because i remember just when i was small i just remember there was the comics page but then i saw that there were comics on the editorial page and that there were comics on the sports page and there were comics in the classifieds so it made me go through every newspaper like from front to back looking for cartoons so I think that was a huge influence. Um, um, just, just finding where cartoons lived, and it just made me say, "Oh, okay, like, you know, cave paintings are cartoons, and yeah. and hieroglyphics are cartoons, and uh, the directions in in the airplane are cartoons." You know, you just like I I saw cartoons almost everywhere, and. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I've done so many different formats from, uh, you know, doing a daily to an autobiographical weekly to a, you know, socio-political single panel, uh, um, longer form narratives. Um, and I, I just really love uh, messing around with the different genres because you, you talked about like sort of um, uh, folks that, I mean, huge influences, people like James Baldwin and Maya Angelou and uh, and Gil Scott Heron and um, David Bowie and uh, um, just folks, just folks who just expanded, <laughs> expanded what I thought art was, you know, um, and 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 personality wise and and how they folks who've managed to kind of be around for a long time i think that's that's a, a trick in and of itself to have a long career um yeah. in in the arts um that's you know as i get into my i'm the old man at the con <laughs> these days <laughs> so i it's really interesting to sort of see folks who've been around for a long time, who've, who've lasted for a long time. And um, and how do you make that those adjustments? And I just remember consciously at one point in time, switching, you know, I still listen to my elders, but there was, a, I made a conscious thing to, to listen to younger people because mm -hmm. younger people had, a, a, younger people obviously the future of the medium how are they doing it? How are they going to 
have a career in this because it's not going to be in newspapers. It's not going to be in magazines. And so that's that's how I learned about Patreon. That's how um, I, I, you know, I cop. I basically co- copy from people that I admire and mm. I see. And I don't mean steal their ideas. I, I you know, yeah. I mean steal what they do <laughs> to have a career. You know, and um, yeah. And I think that's that's something you, you gotta you want to emulate. Uh, uh, your heroes, whether they're they were around fifty years ago or whether they're around now. Yeah, it's um, and, and thank you, thank you for that because I, I think in having this sense of like what's happening now, where are people moving towards things, and they're they're very like especially. In, in podcasting, you know, that's a, that's the lane that I'm in. And, you know, I was describing how long I've been doing it and now hearing that, oh, we've scaled it, we've monetized it, we've done this, we've done that. And instead of being stuck, like I've been doing this so long, I need to pay attention to, and I make it an effort to pay attention to what's happening now, where in a Gretzky sort of way, where is the puck going? I don't care about where it's been and trying to find ways to stay true to what the ethos and what the purpose of what I'm doing is, but Mm. the means in which to put it out there, that's ever changing. So you got to be in the know. If it's doing a bunch of reels, if it's having a Patreon, if it's, um, you know, with, within means, I'm going to at least pay some attention to that and listen, you know, that's, that's the, 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 the thing that people must do more of. And, um, and, and then, and then the, the stealing can piece or what have you, like, I look at, like the the podcast or have you, there are certain ones that I don't like. I like to, you know, someone can listen to me and let's say I was doing, uh, I was listening to a lot of Deez Zamiro at a point and the podcast that I was doing, it definitely had some of that kind of energy rub off on it. And it's not, you know, maybe me stealing from it, but it's me being influenced in that way and then trying yeah. to repurpose it and make it my own to paraphrase it, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what you do is like, I mean, I look at, my early work and I could totally see all the, the, all the influences there. And what happens is like you just develop your own unique style as you are working through all these influences. And um, yeah, it's, everybody goes through those growing pains. And I think it's having the patience to know that you're going to find your voice eventually. Like I just know so many people, who just if they you know they start drawing and it doesn't look exactly the way they want it they'll just rip the page up and throw it away yeah, yeah. And, and start completely on a new piece of paper and it's like no no just like you know there are no mistakes and as you're doing it just like just do it right next to it so you can see like you know if, if you want to improve on it or whatever but like just don't don't feel like you're going to just be on top of it, uh, of your game right at the beginning. It's going to take time. You know, there's it, something about those, what is it? 10,000 hours you put yeah, in? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's yeah. funny. It's funny you mentioned that. Um, Cause it, it, I'm going to, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to go back, to go back into it. But I think of this example, um, the Austin Cleon book, you know, still like an artist, you, you hear about this thing of having, he incorporates, I think a, um, was the analog to digital loop in his work. And I tried to do some of that. I always have a notepad with me. I always have something instead of going into the notes app in my, my, my cell phone, I rather have a notepad to write down the questions because I find that 
I'm inclined to edit, you know, what I'm doing in the phone before I even have the idea fully realized and fully flourished and, and, and propagated. So for you, how much of your process is digital? How much of it is analog? How do you kind of make sure that it's true to your approach? How do you make sure that you're having those times where you might erase something or you might um, redo something, have that side-by-side you were describing? I'm, I'm extremely analog. I always do. I always have a sketchbook with me. I basically, I just use the composition books with the lines in them. Um, <laughs> And just like, it just, it's, it's my, it's my safe space, really. It just recalls, it calls back to me being in grade school and I just draw like crazy in there. And it helps me like keep my letters uh, when I do dialogue, it helps me keep it straight. And, and, um, and it's just, I love looking through old notebooks and seeing, I was like, Oh, okay. That's, that's when I was in Paris and I was drawing this. And <laughs> this is when I was, you know, in the writer's room with the TV show and I was doing, you know, coming up with ideas for that. And like, just, it's, it's a wonderful stroll down memory lane for me. And, um, and I feel like <clears throat> it's almost like, I, you know, it's almost like when you play tennis, like if, if you're just hitting around with somebody and there's nothing, you know, you're not playing a game. You tend tend to go for shots that, you know, that are really outside your comfort zone and you're running around doing all this stuff. And then when the game starts, if, if you're a mediocre player like me, then you start like not taking as many chances and like, you know, just like staying within the lines. So I love having that freedom of that sketchbook, uh, just going nuts. And then, and then trying to recreate that looseness, that wild uh, looseness. I try to recreate that in my comics. You know, people, <laughs> people, I think they're trying to say in a nice way, I'm, I'm extremely sloppy with my cartoon. Because <laughs> they say, oh, it's just like, it, it seems like you just, just vomited out onto the page. It's like, but, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I like to draw in a very loose way and in a very rubbery way. And, and, you know, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, all there's all these other influences that I have, including a lot of underground cartoonists like um, Robert Crumb. You know, I, I know there's a lot of controversy with, you know, his sexist and racist drawings and stuff, but his style is cross-hatching. You know, he's an amazing uh, artist and, um, and also people like Mary Fleener and Pete Bag and and um, and also like uh, old school cartoonist Ollie Harrington, um, black cartoonist who came up in the Harlem Renaissance, and yeah. he actually left the country and went to Germany and and drew comics in, in Eastern Germany for uh, decades. And uh, yeah, he's he's he, I have this book of essays from him called why i left america and it just totally rings true to the point where you know if you look at the stuff that's written about today and then go back 50 years and look at what was being written about then and then 50 years before that it's the same thing it's the same thing comics wise uh writing wise the issues you know plaguing the black community which is just you know having rights to vote, having rights to clean water, having, you know, just not being treated 
like garbage by you know and being used by the u.s yeah and and it's just really interesting you know the u.s loves everything black except (laughs) its people you know 100 percent 100 percent uh so and, and i think I think that leads into this question. Um, and it was something you touched on earlier when talking about, about woke a bit. Um, so why is humor an effective tool to get across like some ideas when it comes to these heavier topics, like, like racial issues? Well, I mean, it's the sugar that, that makes the medicine go down, right? Like, uh, it's, you know, the court jesters back in the day could speak truth to power through humor and amusement. And um, sometimes you get a laugh to keep from crying. So um, I think black folks have done that forever. And, and um, I think we're the best at it. And um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> go with what works, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and so that's, it's, that's our history and it's it's really interesting you say that because someone was just talking to me about possibly contributing to oh yeah somebody i'm I'm in chapel hill uh north carolina and someone at unc was talking about they were <clears throat> there was this discussion about using the history of black comedians um and was wondering if i'd like to participate in some way shape or form and um, i was like yeah sure i, I love that uh, i've done some i do a series of portraits of folks that have influenced me over the years and and some of them include you know uh portrait portraiture of black comedians uh, i've got one of dick gregory and um, one of richard Pryor. so yeah man black humor that's again we laugh uh, to keep from crying all the time right. or to keep from being really really mad yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, that, that was one of the things that, and, and thank you for sharing that. It was one of those things where, you know, the podcast that I was doing before I got into this, it kind of had that in there. It was just like me just being very flippant about these kind of heavier topics. And I, I remember doing an interview with uh, the founder of the American Visionary Arts Museum here in Baltimore, um, Rebecca Hoffberger. And literally she had that same quote that you mentioned about the uh, the jester speaking, you know, truth to power. And, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where I would try to use humor to get across those kind of heavier topics. So I definitely see where you're coming from. And, and thank you for sharing that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, it's 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 therapeutic, too, in a way. And I just sit there and think, man, like if I didn't have cartoons to work through my <laughs> angers and frustrations, I don't know what I would do. Yeah. And I think you see that a lot when people don't have the ability to express their frustrations, you know, they'll let it out in a much more negative way. So, um, you know, if there's anything I want young black folks to think about doing is to get into mental health and yeah. uh, get into get into therapy yourself but also just become a therapist because mm-hmm. you know uh, we need it we need it and uh, talking to white folks ain't gonna help <laughs> much <laughs> oof <laughs> you're not wrong uh, so 
I want to, I got two more real questions for you. Then I got some rapid fires. Even the great doctor Keith Knight doesn't get away from the rapid fire question. So we got a couple of those coming up uh, at the, at the end of this uh, interview here. But um, I wanted to ask you these next two and these will be the the kind of wrap up here. Can you describe like a a daily routine that you have in in terms of drawing? Um, How often do you draw how many hours and how do you break up your day in terms of drawing and going through your, um, your process? Well, that's interesting. And, and it goes back to the analog thing, which I didn't fully quite answer. Like sure. I draw, <clears throat> I have my notebooks and I carry them around everywhere and I just write and draw. I'm like writing and drawing at a lot of different weird times. Um, we homeschool our kids here. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, um, contrary to what everyone thinks it's we don't sit at home with a little room that looks like a school room <laughs> it's uh there's a lot of driving around because there's a lot of homeschooled kids here and there's a lot of folks who teach homeschooling classes and so uh we are going different places all the time i take my kids uh, on like field trips a lot and um so um, sometimes you find yourself just sitting in a car or just at the cafe and, and at cafes is where I love to draw because even though cartooning is a very solitary endeavor, I really love being around people. I think uh, just people watching, listening to people helps me come up with ideas. And so I'll draw at a cafe um, I'll go there for a couple of hours. I'll come up with a few ideas and then I'll draw. It's totally analog. I, I use Sharpies and micron pigment markers and 300 Bristol staff, Strathmore Bristol. I sketch it out in pencil. Uh, I draw it up and, um, and then I scan it and put it in Photoshop and that's where I clean it up and, uh, and I color it. So, um, my deadlines are generally on Tuesday. And uh, so I'm, I'm basically finishing right up until deadline. Um, I'll do one or two strips. Uh, I'll do a think strip, my single panel, or I'll do a multi-panel Cake Chronicles or both. And I usually do them, yeah, Monday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. And then the rest of the week uh, is like just doing all the other business stuff and doing sort of television development stuff. Um, I don't know if you know, but we didn't get a third season for Woke. So um, so now I'm developing a new show. And uh, so I've been spending a lot of time developing the pitch for that. Yeah. And, um, and then just also, but on top of that, still doing promotion for the show for for Woke. Uh, the great thing about streaming is, if you get canceled, it's you still exist. Yeah. You're still on the platform, and so I'm doing a lot of promote. I have a new book out too called Good on Both Sides, a collection of think scripts, and so I'm doing a lot of presentations. I'm doing a lot of signings, woke screenings. Uh, you know, a bunch of different things. So. It's 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 and my kids are doing they're they're doing both soccer and baseball. So everything is every day is sort of chaotic. (laughs) (laughs) We have one car and and it's just it's just running around a lot of different places. So like every day is I mean, but it's it's it keeps things interesting. Let's just say that. And um, and and this is another thing I just tell cartoonists is like. 
you have to diversify. If you want to have a, a viable career as a cartoonist, your income streams have to come from all these different places. So, you know, my income streams come from obviously in my Patreon. And uh, I also have this newsletter that people can, can su subscribe to. And then the few newspapers that I'm in and in the online uh, sites that I'm in, um, I also license my work for textbooks. Mm. So people hit me up for that. Um, and then that portraiture I do of different uh, folks that influence me, yeah. I get a lot of people who buy those prints. Um, in fact, my print, I think I sell more prints now than I do books at conventions. And um and then I get these commissions to do storytelling, to do slideshows, to do uh, woke screenings and stuff. So it's a, it's a constant. Uh, it's just a lot of things. And and you know my, <laughs> it's not easy to try to try to get a mortgage and explain to people what Patreon is. <laughs> <laughs> so where's your income from? Come from? But uh, it's but from the also, community, guys. <laughs> <laughs> But also, you know, uh, you know, my website, I, I sell a lot of books, a lot of T-shirts, a lot of different things. And um, yeah, so it's just a, a constant and I, I enjoy the hustle. I enjoy yeah. sort of it, it's 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 fun. <laughs> it's, I guess it's, it wouldn't be fun if if it wasn't working for me, <laughs> but it, 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 it has worked for me very well. And um and and now I'm starting to to do these uh, do these seminars where um, where I teach other artists how to do it. So yeah. um, that's been fun too, and just giving advice on that type of stuff. I, and, and I like hearing hearing what you're describing, where you're you're able to configure, you know, your life as a creative, as as a father, as a as a as a husband, as and, and all of these these different ways that that fits you and i think that that sounds like freedom to me that sounds like just you know in creating this degree of difficulty which i think a lot of artists kind of dig i think having that you know creative problem solving is a thing that i think most if not all artists do and i think you've embedded that into your kind of artist lifestyle and it just sounds it sounds great it, you know like i like to at times I think I'm doing it in the back of my head when I know that I'm doing a out of um, studio sort of recording session, I'll forget a certain integral piece to my gear and I'll figure out a way to MacGyver that joint. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing happens when you're on set, like when, when we're shooting episodes, it's, it's really, you know, I, I guess it's not the greatest thing to, to, you don't sit there and go, man, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next problem. <laughs> comes. But I love the way, again, we MacGyver things to make things work, you know. Um, and my favorite thing was in season two was how my cameo came about, which was, you know, we wanted to have a mime in, in this one scene in the first episode of season two. And, and the mime just wanted too much money. <laughs> That's like, I'll, I'm just going to be the mind. And, um, and really all it was, was 
people, you know, like makeup throwing on that white makeup and giving me a, a black beret. Apparently, <laughs> I dressed like a low rent mime <laughs> in my regular outfit. I didn't even need a costume. And uh, and I got to, you know, bust out my pop and lock skills. And, uh, <laughs> and it's just, you know, just, just stuff like that. Or just when, you know, we need a, some line might not be working. And, and so we're on set and we have to come up with that, that, that line that sort of, you know, it's like, Oh man, like that worked out great. Everything worked, you know, just stuff like that just makes me, uh, makes me happy. Or uh, in the first season we were in Vancouver and we shot it in January or February and it either rained or snowed like, 30 days in a row and so you know that the show is supposed to take place in san francisco so there's not supposed to be chefs now right. so we literally had to take some outdoor scenes and make them indoor scenes and and i think those were some of the most interesting scenes because we had the macgyver that you know so it was really interesting um those yeah. things that when it's happening you're like oh god why why but when you're done, you're like, oh man, that's cool. We handled that really well. <laughs> yeah, it's uh I, I was um my, my scenes didn't get picked up, but uh they filmed that we own the city here in Baltimore and uh we were shooting um a scene that was set in like the fall or even the winter, but uh we were filming it during like August. And I was like, yeah, this is, I'm going to sweat off my ethnicity here. It's not going to be great. And it, it was just super hot and sweaty. I was like, are they going to digitally remove the sweat? What are we doing? I'm wearing a hoodie that's like a goose down joint and it is uh, 95 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's speaking. Yeah. We shot season two in Atlanta in July. Oof. And so we went from winter first season one and then just like the hottest <laughs> bit of summer in season two in Atlanta. And I was just like, man, I felt bad. Cause they, you know, you had to wear here, wear this jacket because it's, it's cold in San Francisco. <laughs> just, uh, they were troopers though. They were definitely yeah. troopers. So I, I think that's actually a good spot for us to kind of wrap on the major questions. And in the last few moments here, I wanted to um, ask you some rapid fire questions. And as I, as I tell everyone that comes on this podcast, don't overthink them. Don't overthink them. Don't overthink them. Uh, so, you know, obviously, you know, cause I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the stomach growl. I'm getting hungry. Uh, what is your go-to snack? My go-to snack. Oh, yes. uh, I'd say whatever my my nine year old half eats. My nine year old just walked in. Actually, <laughs> basically, <laughs> he likes to eat something and leave it for later, and then I just always eat it, and then he gets <laughs> mad at me. So um, right now he's got a, he's looking at me really mean, but he's eating a a, a hamburger right now. So um, I'm, I'm you know that's. It's usually leftovers. I, I like I'm a leftover. I'm a finisher. They they call me the finisher in this household. So it, it varies whatever it is. Like I'm the one who finishes it. So he, he like, who finishes. I love it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, what is something that without fail is going to make you laugh? Oh, man. <laughs> There's a couple of things. Okay. And it's terrible. It's terrible. I feel guilty about it. <clears throat> but there's this there's this one clip 
of uh, Channel Two, Channel Two <laughs> and and uh, newscast in San Francisco used to be like the respectable newscast, and there was I don't know if you remember, but there was this like this Korean airliner that like had an accident on the runway there, mm-hmm. and and <laughs> it's so bad, and supposedly. Someone sent in, <laughs> they they have a report where the woman is reading live. We just found out the um, the name of the pilots who are flying this Korean airliner. And, and so she read on air with a like completely straight face. She said the names are... Um, I can't even say, I can't even say it because my kids here. Holy f! But she said "fook." Um, <laughs> we too low and bang ding ow. She Oof. read that on air and had the names up there, and <laughs> I, I was like, and, and <laughs> there had to be somebody Asian in that newsroom who said. <laughs> who got that and said, oh, you're going to read this on, on air? Like, I don't know who sent it to them, but yeah, I'd like to see you read this on air. It was, it's so offensive, yeah. yet so outrageously funny that like a major newscast would let get that out. That never, I always laugh at that. And it's just, it's just terrible. It's, it's one of those things where I sit there and go, you know, I know I'm a terrible person for laughing at this, but. It just goes to show you just how bad, um, you know, like just how, I don't know, the quality of broadcasting has gone down the tubes and there's nobody to call that out. No one saw that, you know? Yes. Uh, I I see that all the time. I see poor editing. I see things that aren't fact-checked and it's a a topic for a different conversation, but it is this kind of rush to be first, but not always right. You know, always fact-checking these things. Yeah. But it is, it's, it's up there. If you look it up, Oh yeah. Korea, like it's, it's, it's embarrassingly funny. And (laughs) I just, if I ever want to just straight up laugh, I just, I just put that on and go, I can't believe someone. (laughs) (laughs) So, Uh, so this, this is the last one I got for you. Um, I did a little research. Uh, you know, th- I did some research. I ain't gonna say a little. I don't want to, you know, diminish what I do. But uh, thinking back, what was uh, what was one part about being a Michael Jackson impersonator that you just couldn't quite get right? Was it the curl? Was it the dancing? Because I, I saw there was a short period of time that you were an MJ impersonator. So, so tell me about that. Well, listen, I was not a good <laughs> person there. I was, I did, you know, I, I was just a skinny uh, black kid with a, a jerry curl. And, <laughs> and, you know, that's all it took for a bunch of white people to scream and be all excited. And uh, <laughs> so I, I did that. I did that at colleges. I did that at uh, local fairs. I did that. And, <laughs> and it was probably, I got paid a higher hourly wage than I ever did as a cartoonist. <laughs> it just, you know, it's just that I only did it for like 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, if I could stretch it out over eight hours, I'd be rich. Um, That's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, no, I like this. I don't, the only thing right. I will say I did 
was I was a great lip syncer. Like, you know, I could do all the little E's and O's, you know, <laughs> like on time, the right way. I, I That's what I, I feel like I prided myself. I, I felt like I was a lot better at that than everybody else doing that stuff. So, um, but yeah, I was bad in every other <laughs> aspect <laughs> of it. Including, including doing, finishing my graphic novel about it. So um, yeah, I'm bad at everything. <laughs> Well, obviously you're not because you were great on here. And um, I want to thank you for um, being on this podcast and spending the time to spend a yarn with me. And um, I want to invite and encourage you to tell the fine folks um, what you got coming up, what you're excited for, and uh, where to check out your work and buy some of your 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 swag, your merch, your books. So the floor is yours. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. If you go to KeithKnightArt.com, uh, KeithKnightArt.com, um, you can check out my work and you can buy some stuff there. But if you want to follow my stuff on a weekly basis, you go to Patreon.com and look up Keith Knight, K-E-E-F, like the character in Woke, K-N-I-G-H-T. And also check out the show, show Woke on Hulu. We're up there um, as, as long as people are checking it out. I, I think it's going to stay up there. But um, I'm doing a bunch of different things. Um, I don't know how soon this is going up, but, you know, I'm off to, to Bethesda, Maryland uh, this weekend for SPX. Um, but I'm also doing uh, that's a small press expo uh, outside of D.C. And I'm doing CXC Columbus, which is a, a big festival Um next month in October. And I just do slideshows and, and, you know, if you check out my site, I'm coming to somewhere near you at some point. And uh, so, yeah, just come and see me sometime. Well, there you have it, folks. I want to again, thank uh, Dr. Keith tonight for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there's art and creators at cartoonists in and around your neck of the woods. You just got to look for them.